From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Cattle, and particularly bovines, are native to Africa, Asia, and Europe. Their milk is now consumed on every continent, even Antarctica. This is largely thanks to the invention of powdered milk in the early 1800s. Powdered milk and its derivatives have come to be used for a variety of products, including protein powder, infant formula, and snack flavorings. Because powdered milk has lower moisture, it spoils less quickly. This lower moisture content also makes it perfect for adding to chocolate, as this moisture would interact really badly with cocoa fat. Yet it wasn't until 1875 when Daniel Peter added Nestle powdered milk to chocolate liquor that milk chocolate was born. And since then, it's taken off hugely. It's now the most popular type of chocolate in the world. But that momentum seems to be slowing. Dark chocolate is growing in popularity, and slowly but surely, people are waking up to the horrors of the dairy industry. Cows don't make milk just walking around every day. They make milk after they have a calf, after they get pregnant. And so in order to drink milk, you have to forcibly impregnate cows over and over and over and over. With more access to information about everything, there's less excuse for not knowing. In the case of milk, this knowledge has brought rise to milk alternatives. And not only in chocolate, but also in cafes and supermarkets and homes. People are being more thoughtful. But what does this move away from dairy mean for the chocolate industry? And more importantly, for the environment and for consumers? These days, coconut milk chocolate is a common alternative to traditional milk chocolate. It uses coconut powder and often vegan-friendly sugar but it's still a relatively new addition to the chocolate scene. It's taken finessing to get vegan-friendly chocolate to the forefront. That guy you heard in the clip just now, that's Joshua Rosen. He's one of the people who's been working to bring vegan-friendly chocolates to the public, and it's been a pretty long road. My name is Joshua Rosen, and I am the chef owner of Charm School Chocolate in Baltimore, Maryland. So when you started your company, it was started as a vegan company, or how did you decide to be a vegan company? Oh, yes. Right out of the gate, we for sure wanted to be an entirely vegan company. And the reason I chose that is because, I mean, there's kind of a a long backstory, but the short version is I wanted to build a company that would make products that everyone could enjoy. I had a lot of friends at the time I was working as a pastry chef, but I had a lot of friends and family who are, you know, either violently allergic to dairy or have a sensitivity uh, and or have simply chosen to assuage animal products for moral reasons. And so as a pastry chef and at the time an omnivore, it really kind of drove me crazy that desserts I had worked on for, you know, good long time, you know, obviously were not able to be enjoyed, you know? And so I said, this is silly from the get. I want to make everything uh, vegan so that, you know, obviously everyone could enjoy them. And then from there, I ended up learning a lot about the vegan community and and so much about an industry now that I really 
truly love and decided to adopt a vegan diet myself and uh, have been ever since. This is what we're here to discuss today. Not necessarily Josh's veganism or unique flavors or even sourcing practices, but rather alternatives to traditional dairy milk, in chocolate in particular. In fact, some alternatives include milk from other mammals, like camels and goats. But those aren't the types of alternatives which are rising in popularity. While the most common and long-standing milk alternative is coconut, there's also oat, rice, soy, and nut milks. And all of these, like traditional milk, come in both liquid and powdered form. But before we can dive into alternatives to dairy, I think it's important to define the word vegan. Because not only do we use that word a lot in this episode, but it's a word heavy with misconception. So what is veganism? Well, most vegans would describe it as a lifestyle. Because the label vegan means that a product doesn't contain any animal products nor does it exploit animals in any way. This means no eggs or milk, animal flesh, or even less obvious products, like honey. And this means that most sugar is not vegan, as it's still standard practice to bleach sugar with animal bones. So vegans can only consume organic or raw sugar, or sugar alternatives. And for Josh at Charm School, this meant very careful sourcing from the start, and careful labeling. Because eight years ago, the idea of vegan anything still brought about a lot of mockery and misunderstanding. Sometimes it still does. Has the vegan or the non-dairy aspect of your chocolate been more important to consumers? And has this changed over time as your company has grown and shifted into more areas? Absolutely. Great question. Very important at, at our current moment in time. What I would say is out of the gate... The term vegan in, unfortunately, many people's eyes was a code word for tastes like wet cardboard. And so in my mind, the fact that it was vegan was very important to me because it meant certain ethical standards, certain considerations way beyond the chocolate itself. But it was very important to me that we come out of the gate as a vegan product that we specifically chose to put the word vegan on the front of our packaging, which at the time was a bit subversive, but we would simply introduce it as non-dairy. And like I said, we were very much a vegan company. As the years have gone on, I think clearly there has been a enlightening and a perception shift because of a lot of effort. And I certainly hope that we've contributed to that. We can make things that are unabashedly delicious and vegan and happy in a way that is inviting and welcoming. You know, I like to think of all of our products as sort of emissaries in that world saying, I want you to know that this is something that you can do and experience and love and truly enjoy without a tiny bit of compromise. What we've learned is that in the way that customers choose our products, we also choose our customers. You know, we're excited and we are always interested in new people, but we know that there's a huge contingency of people out there that feel unseen, that say, I have a, like, I get emails all of the time, all the time. 
and it is the most wonderful thing in the world. And they'll say something to the effect of my son or daughter is violently allergic to dairy. And every day they go to school and their friends all have, you know, milk chocolate chip cookies and they eat chocolate bars and all this stuff in front of them. And it breaks my heart that they can't have this until we found yours. And your chocolate is the only chocolate that I've ever found that gives my kids the opportunity to be just like their friends. And it is the most wonderful, sweet, and loving thing. And that is the thing that makes us want to get up every day and do this over and over and over again. You see, using milk alternatives isn't just about being planet-friendly, but being people-friendly. And while there's always someone out there allergic to one of your ingredients, the goal is to make delicious chocolate for as many people as you can. Because it's people who've taken custody of the planet's health. And as thoughtful as we can be, it's also hard to give up things we're accustomed to, like chocolate. So one of the ways we can take better care of our planet is by using its resources more thoughtfully. In the case of milk and the dairy industry as a whole, this means using less or none of it. The rise of alternative milk chocolates is making this easier. What do you think that this turn away from dairy means for chocolate makers and consumers in terms of health and in terms of environmental impact and about the flavor of chocolate as we know it, as we've learned it growing up? Well, I definitely think there's going to be an evolution in all aspects. I think that, first of all, flavor. I don't think there's anything more powerful in the world of sweets than nostalgia. And I think that it is going to be near impossible to tell people that they'll just never be able to have a flavor from their childhood. And so I do think that it's not going to be an industry-wide, everyone is just going to drop dairy and switch. I think there's always going to be a powerful force to say, I want things the way that I've had them. But like all things, I think that there are going to be a powerful few, maybe even hopefully a you know, majority eventually, that will move to what we seem as a much more thoughtful low impact, gentle process. I do think that it is going to be a slow evolution. As far as the flavors are concerned, I think I am really appreciative of the fact that people are now way more open-minded into new and interesting flavors as opposed to a milk chocolate bar, a milk chocolate bar with almonds. I mean, pick an interesting country. I mean, people are way more excited now for uh, kind of travel through taste, so to speak, to actually learn things about different places. And hopefully eventually consistently care about the environment outside. Oh my goodness, yes. Places. <laughs> Not just the people and the flavor. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I don't think you can you can have a a time and place like this one when, you know, all day, every day, we hear about the looming climate crisis and how we need massive global change and systematic shifts to, you know, really save our planet as a whole. I think more and more chocolate makers are going to start having to really question their carbon footprint and, you know, where they get their products and how they impact the world as a whole. And hopefully we'll be able to pass that along to the consumers and say, listen, we genuinely do this because we believe in it. And we know that you believe in it. And we know that when our kind of purposes align, it's wonderful for everybody. You know, we're all going to win in this. So I do think very much so that is that is very important. 
At the end of 2019, Mars, one of the world's biggest chocolate manufacturers, announced a line of vegan chocolate bars. They're planning to launch first in the UK, sometime this year. American organic foods giant Trader Joe's also announced a vegan milk chocolate line, just last month. I do wonder how the human element of ingredient sourcing will play into that line, but that's another episode right there. Even for mass market manufacturers, their marketing has shifted towards openly calling products vegan. But this technicality of being vegan ignores part of the reason people are switching in the first place. Equality. Equality for the planet and all of its inhabitants, animal and otherwise. A lot of this marketing is being called greenwashing. For people who've never heard that term before, could you explain the term greenwashing? Sure. The way that I would kind of term it is taking the moral and ethical ideals, what we imagine, and assigning words and uh, sometimes even certifications and things um, to processes that make us feel as though there are true, real benefits to actual people, but unfortunately don't quite deliver on that promise. For instance, fair trade. I mean, things like that, where people will set a price per weight of cocoa bean as, as a fair, quote, fair, unquote, wage, um, just simply determined as a, as a blanket wage. And now, uh, once a uh, commodity buyer can match that price, then they can suddenly stamp this idea of, oh, we are being fair to growers, farmers, co-ops, that kind of thing. Um, but what that might actually translate to the person at Farmgate actually producing the beans themselves, you know, is, is pennies on the dollar and, and may not even be close to a livable wage. What is the legal definition of your chocolate, in particular your milk and white chocolates, according to the U.S. government? Is it dark chocolate? What about the white chocolates? Because I noticed you have some careful wording on some of your packaging. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we cannot come out and say our products are white chocolate, um, simply because white chocolate has a defined definition. It is, uh, you know, such and such percentage milk solid, such and such percentage uh, cocoa butter, um, they are given ranges and, you know, I, I don't know, I want to bore you with, with too many nitty gritty facts, but the, the fact of the matter is because we do not actually include the, you know, uh, dried milk from a cow, a bovine specifically, uh, we cannot refer to it as a, a milk chocolate. And so meaning a, a, a chocolate containing milk. So we do not call our white chocolate white chocolate. We just call it white period. Because I think in a funny turn, and this is kind of silly in my mind, the sort of industrialization of chocolate, uh, you know, writ large in, you know, across the world has shifted what would be a traditional quote unquote white chocolate um, to very much a confection. It is a sugar delivery mechanism with a little bit of, of cocoa butter along with it. And so I find it funny that our version, which has 34% cacao, you know, is a relatively rich bar, would not be technically called white chocolate because it does not contain dairy. Looking online can give us a lot of insight into which movements are picking up steam. Every December, Pinterest, a visual search engine, 
publishes a report on the top trends for the upcoming year. They draw these 100 topics from the searches people made over the previous year. For 2020, some of their top 100 searches are for low-waste living and reduced carbon footprint. This is relevant here because vegan milk chocolate is currently a premium food type. The people who use Pinterest tend to be female, higher income, and American. They can afford to be thoughtful with their consumption. They can and do buy specialty chocolate in whatever form it comes in. But they're more aware than ever of what's going into that chocolate. I think uh, finally also veganism has arrived in the mainstream, which is a great thing for the planet. And there's just so many exciting ingredients that can be used. But also like people are just, I think, more open to seeing further back in the value chain mm-hmm. where their food is coming from. And, and just being more thoughtful about it. Like milk powder is no longer just milk powder. It's something that comes from a cow. It's not just by yeah. itself. It's like part of a system. It's something that comes from an animal. And people are keenly aware of animal husbandry nowadays as well. This is Julia. My name is Julia Zotter. And my family company is also called Zotter. We're from Austria. We're um, a fully organic and fair bean-to-bar producer. We've been producing bean to bar since 2006 and confectionery chocolates since 1995-ish. When I think of Zotter, I think more of like looking at the ingredients and what you can do with ingredients and origins and telling stories. So that kind of in the craft sphere. But when, when did you launch the vegan milk chocolates and what made you want to start that line of non-dairy milk chocolates? Actually, quite early on. So we started Bean to Bar in 2006, definitely before any big craft chocolate movement even started to be on the map, as far as I can tell for Austria and and our neighboring countries, at least. For us, it's all about the experimentation. When we made our first vegan chocolates, it was really about the flavor and about creating something really interesting. The first vegan milk chocolates that we developed were um, soy milk chocolates because soy milk was then the number one milk alternative that people were using and soy milk powder was also readily available and gradually as the as the vegan movement started to become stronger more and more milk alternatives also started emerging like rice milk coconut milk so we were always kind of like some as soon as a new raw material started emerging on the market and obviously also certified organic, we were willing to start experimenting and see how it would change the flavor of chocolate. So for us, the the, the first reason to start was uh, flavor and creating something different. And then as we started to get more and more into the milk alternatives, it started to become about uh, offering vegan alternatives. Um, even though we're a company that also uses meat and chocolates, um, we definitely also want to push the boundaries to create more and more vegan options for our customers that taste great and that don't make you feel like you have to you have to say no to things or it's you know like it's a hard thing to live vegan or at least partially vegan, um, but to actually make it fun. Which year did you launch the soy vegan chocolates? I'd have to check a long, long time ago, but it must have been around 2007 or 8. 
now, like for the last two years, we're seeing an increase in demand in all kinds of vegan chocolates. How have people reacted to the non-dairy milks over time? And has that changed at all? Has it been like people who are looking for lactose-free chocolates or like vegan chocolates or just sustainable things, presents? Like it was two years ago that you think people really started looking for them on purpose? Yes, I think so. It's because uh, veganism has more or less arrived in the mainstream. So for example, like maybe three, four years ago, you'd go to a restaurant, ask for a vegan option, and then they'd be like, well, we can give you rice and maybe some carrots, right? So people had no, at least here in, in Austria, not really much of an idea of why anyone should be vegan and had more like an air of a green warrior kind of type. And nowadays it's finally arrived in the mainstream. When we started with uh, vegan alternatives, it was more of an experimentation for most of our customers. So they would read like soy milk chocolate and then they tasted and tried, but not because they were vegan or they were looking for any alternative, but because they thought it was interesting. And then over the course of the years, that started to change more and more with the advent of more organic supermarkets. A lot of people that were looking for niche products went to organic supermarkets or organic markets to find vegan or lactose-free alternatives. The organic wave definitely came before the vegan wave. And now we're finally arriving at vegan, where not every vegan product has to be organic anymore, but people are looking for it anyway. That It's basically like more waves going into each other. Different avenues from which people have ended up with the same idea of these vegan non-dairy milk chocolates yes exactly also it's the arrival of different ingredients and that becoming normal just just as an example oat milk coffee i think last year was one of the big beverage trends and before that people were like what you can drink oat milk and nowadays it's become something normal uh same with coconut milk same with rice milk for example I think the coffee industry also did a lot of um, groundwork there first. Do you think that was also about two years ago that you started seeing in supermarkets and cafes more like almond milk, oat milk, rice milk? Yes. Um, I'm not not sure if it's just two years ago, but um, that might have started longer. That Yeah, the coffee industry going like the, the oat milk lattes and the soy milk lattes and all those alternatives. Once that started to arrive in a coffee shop, it started to become more normal for people to choose a vegan option. When you're balancing recipes for like a soy milk or a rice milk, how deep into the chemistry do you go? How, how do you go about formulating a new recipe for a bar? Well, what we do a lot of times is um, the definite advantage of having smaller machinery, a lot of trial and error. Basically, the milk powder, so you, you can't use liquid unless you're using something like the Hershey process, but uh, we're not doing that. So those powders are usually quite easy to use and usually most powders you can use just like dairy powder in terms of quantities or ratios and then you just try like for example rice milk powder tends to be stickier because of the natural starch content it has 
um, than dairy milk powder because dairy milk doesn't have any any starch and, 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 and doesn't have the same sugars and has a different fat structure. So you can start by using the same formula, actually, and then see how that changes the flavor and how that changes the chocolate texture. But we don't do any, any chemical experiments first. For example, when you have a look at the fat content of dairy milk powder, and then you look at the fat content of soy milk powder, it will give you a little bit of an indicator on how much you can substitute them for each other. Soy milk has a lower fat content, so um, your chocolate might not be as liquid afterwards or not as, as smooth as with dairy. But other than that, you can always try to play around with that, for example, in adding more cocoa butter. It's really more experimentation and having machines that are not uh, a black box, basically. I think that can be an issue, though I don't have any experience with this, with, for example, the McIntyre machines. Those are like big mixers where you just add all the ingredients into the mix and then it just grinds the ingredients down versus us working with roller refiners. So you have a little bit more of an open process where you can always feel the products and see the product um, and then also determine whether the changes that you made are going to be good or bad. So in getting into formulating the recipes, it's more so about finding the macronutrient ingredients and levels of each individual powder and trying to make sure that that meshes as much with traditional dairy milk powder. Yes. Or it doesn't even have to match all the way. Like some, some things are just way more hygroscopic. That's something that probably one needs to be most careful about. For example, rice milk powder again is very hygroscopic. So that, that means it tends to keep moisture it tends in. to um, attract moisture, exactly. So when you gonge that, which releases moisture, um, it can happen that the powder, the rice milk, will start to catch that uh, humidity and then start to recrystallize. So what one has to be careful with is the gonching temperatures, um, the energy intake, but that's more of a trial and error thing, and it's very specific to what kind of technology people use. So for example, if you use a... Uh, um, like a like a grinder, a mallinger, like most bean-to-bar crafts, you're never going to reach these high temperatures that are really going to matter, for example, when it comes to gonching. So every technology has, has its advantages or, or disadvantages. Is there a specific ratio that you know off the top of your head that you need for fat to solids for making a milk or a white chocolate? It depends. Like, for example, if you have 100% dark chocolate, that's typically about 50% fat, right? So more fat is always possible. But we're looking at a minimum of 35% for a certain liquidity that we want. But one has to be careful. Cocoa butter is the ideal hardness for chocolate. And as soon as you start adding other fats, like, for example, the milk fat and milk powder or... Um, the almond oil and almond powder or, or any such thing um, that will change the fat composition and make your chocolate softer. I think uh, currently we're experimenting with anything between 15 to 40% milk powder in the formulation. And you can do that with coconut as well, for example. We have a chocolate that has 20% coconut powder. We have a chocolate that has 
40%. So I know you also have a, a line of no sugar added milk chocolates that mm-hmm. I knew go as high as 70% and 30% milk powder. Yes. That's, that's the lowest one. I think that's the, um, that's the, uh, the, most, the, the milkiest one. Milkiest. Yeah. So this 30, 70 to 20, 80, and uh, we've just started with a vegan option as well, which is a coconut-based one. So it's like a 20% coconut powder, about 15 of fruit powder, mango in that case, and the rest cocoa. But it tastes really weird and really good. <laughs> I love I love weird and good, preferably together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with these kinds of chocolates, though... Um, it, it's very important to manage people's expectations because it doesn't taste like a milk chocolate at all. People don't have experience in everything, so they can't know exactly what they want when there's a massive pool of options, like at Sauter. Sauter has about 500 flavors of chocolate, so it comes down to trying a little of everything. But for some chocolate makers, the issue also comes down to branding the few options that they do have on offer. Just like Josh's chocolate in the U.S., Sauter's vegan line in Austria is not technically milk chocolate. Neither are any vegan milk chocolates, however. Do you see big companies starting to, like, do you see the potential for big companies starting to lobby, basically, lawmakers to change the definitions for chocolate? Because when people can't see the word chocolate on packaging, maybe it's not as obvious that it's still made with cacao or do you think that they'll just get more creative in their marketing of i think getting more creative in the marketing in the beginning is probably the cheaper option for them um but i think in the long run there will be more openness the more people demand dairy alternatives the more it will be for bigger companies also to to start offering these products and at some point, there will be a strong enough like incentive for them to really lobby for that. In the beginning, especially when you only have smaller companies offering an alternative, obviously a big company, first of all, they're usually conservative. They don't want to change. They're really slow. Um, and it's easier for them to just keep uh, the existing rule set um, alive. So smaller companies that offer niche products have harder access to market. So in the beginning, they will do anything to suppress change. But as soon as the movement becomes strong enough, like now with the eco-social or or eco-conscious movement, at some point you can't keep that under lids anymore. And then I think things will start changing really fast. Someone announced a few months ago that they're introducing a a vegan, completely vegan line of of chocolates to the, the mass market. What kind of effect do you see that having on the availability of more niche things as these big companies, these mass producers of chocolate, start getting into the vegan or milk alternative? Well, I think I would welcome this news because, for one thing, they have access to a lot of customers. And if a big company makes a change like that to offer like a new product, then they open a lot of people's minds that we as a small company or as an organic company don't have access to. So in general, that's a good thing for them to to change or at least offer one, one range that is vegan. Even if some people might call that greenwashing, 
I think in the greater good kind of sense, it's a good thing that they're doing it. For availability, definitely, because the more and more people start thinking about non-dairy options, the more companies there will be that look for interesting options as well. But with that demand rising, I think there would be a lot more other companies looking for alternatives that are interesting, like, for example, coconut milk or buckwheat or golden millet or oat milk. So I think that's generally a good thing. For all the talk of milk alternatives in this episode, one thing we haven't dug into is each individual alternative. The biggest five are soy, almond, coconut, oat, and rice milks. Each of these choices comes with its own environmental, social, and logistical issues, which I won't get into here, because every single one of them is less impactful than cow's milk. And even with a relatively small impact of chocolate upon the dairy industry, I hope this choice is making a difference. I hope it prompts people to consider how they think not only about the environment in places where ingredients are sourced, but also the people who live there. The rise of milk alternatives is an important indication. It shows how far back in the sourcing chain consumers are now thinking, because there can be thousands of vegan and environmentally minded companies out there, but consumers are the ones who keep those companies in business. We're the ones who demand change from the companies which already exist, and we vote with our dollars, deciding which companies' products bring us joy. Part of it does go back to what you were saying earlier, though, that you're kind of insulting their childhood. I mean, maybe people don't necessarily realize that, but like you're insulting the foods that bring them so much comfort. And it almost feels like you're saying that they're bad people because they've eaten them, even if you're really not. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, I want to be very careful. But when I describe these things to people, I would never, never, ever, ever come at anybody in any semblance of an aggressive way or a you're wrong or any of this. That is, anytime somebody gives you the invitation or anytime somebody says to you, you know, I don't know about this or why would you do it this way? That is an invitation for a conversation. So in my mind, these are, I'm just sharing these things as facts to you and the motivations of why I do what I do and why we make these things such a core concept in our business, why we think it's so very important. But this is not the conversation that I have with somebody face-to-face, these are the kind of things that I believe is my core motivators. That being said, if somebody says to me, but I grew up with this, I love this, my answer to that is your childhood and the things that brought you happy are incredibly important. That is what makes, you know, all of the more annoying bits of day-to-day life at times you know, enjoyable. That's what we what do we do to make each other happy. And in my mind, if you can tell me that the products that we have are delicious and I hope bring joy to all of the people that, you know, buy them, frankly, those products can deliver that joy and share and build the experiences very similar to what you had in your childhood, but in a way that invites all of these other people into building a better world, then I see that as a much more appealing option. I'm not telling you that that your experience is bad or wrong, not at all, because you did the best with the knowledge that you had. That's what was out there. That's what was known. You know, I look at my sister's kids who are six months and three respectively. And I think that the chocolate that we're making today is the kind of nostalgia I want to give them because I think it's a better system for the future. And if we come to find later that, you know, 
growing coconut is terrible for the environment, then you know what? We're going to change our ways and switch to something else because it's the right thing to do. For those curious about the chemistry behind milk alternatives and the cultural shift away from dairy milks, I'll leave links in the show notes to the most helpful articles and studies. And hopefully, we'll all keep learning how to consume more thoughtfully, at home and on the road. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. And especially huge thank you to Julia and Josh for being in this episode. To learn more about our guests, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.